Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who will introduce the subject and guest of our show today. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm well. Thank you, Nate. It's always a pleasure joining you. Our guest today is Mark Fabro, the President and Chief Security Scientist at Lofty Perch. I caught Mark at the Canada Public Safety Industrial Control System Security event in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Mark is going to talk to us about risk assessments, not just how they're done today, but you know, problems with them and, and really how they should be done. Let's listen into your conversation with Mark. Can we start at the beginning? What, uh, what is a risk assessment and uh, maybe what's wrong with how people do it today? What, what, what's the problem? What are we thinking about here? Well, the basic essence of a risk assessment, I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a term that is interpreted, I think, at a, a, a variety of different ways across, across the spectrum, specific to cybersecurity, I guess, and specific to industrial control systems uh, security. The, the risk assessment is, is really a, a process that empowers the, the owner of the system to truly understand the risk landscape associated with particular assets and in particular to vulnerabilities and be able to effectively understand the consequences against operations should some of those vulnerabilities be uh, exploited. Uh, I think it's important, though, to also mention that in the context of a risk assessment, it it, it informs the organization uh, with information that that they can incorporate into the corporate risk registry, digest that, and then make better informed decisions about how to mitigate it based on cost, level of effort, consequence, and things like that. So I think a lot of people often interpret risk assessment with penetration testing, with vulnerability testing, these kind of things. I think that risk assessment is a, a, a umbrella um, concept uh, under which you have vulnerability assessment, under which you have penetration testing. All of those make up the components or the tactical activities that create a better understanding or deliver a better understanding of the risk uh, that an organization might have. And in this particular case, it would be cybersecurity of the industrial control systems. So let's explore that for a second. I'll, we'll get to you know the evolution in a moment. Um, You've, you, you, you said the word mitigate, meaning, you know, do something about the risk. Um, is that always what happens with the result of a risk assessment? Do people mitigate all risks? That's a really good question. So risk assessments should always result in the owners of the system to have the intelligence to make better informed decisions on how to mitigate. If your question is, do all the risks get mitigated with the results of a risk assessment? Absolutely not. Some risks, uh, the mitigation cost for uh, mitigating a risk uh, could be X amount of dollars. But when you do the analysis on the worst case scenario for that risk being capitalized on by an adversary, it could be one-tenth of X. And it makes no business sense to pay 10x of a cost to mitigate something that in the worst case scenario is going to cost a fraction of that. So the answer is no. What I think is most important here is the concept of understanding 
consequences as it relates to to risk. How a risk, when capitalized on by an adversary, whether it's in the form of a vulnerability or something else, how how the consequence uh, is mapped to that risk, and more importantly. And this is where I, I think a lot of the, the contemporary discussion should move to is understanding the conditions that need to be met for that consequence to be achieved. A lot of people will say in this risk assessment, we found out you had 400 vulnerabilities in your human machine interface or, you know, your your database servers are completely vulnerable without actually understanding the consequence, without understanding the the uh, conditions that need to be met for those vulnerabilities to be capitalized on. It, it, it's really a false sense of understanding the actual risk because the work effort for the adversary, the cost associated with actually getting to the point where those vulnerabilities could be executed, where all of those necessary conditions could be met for the adversary to be successful, could be astronomical and ridiculous. And at some point, the cost of performing the attack may actually greatly outweigh the value of the consequence. And, and, and you know, historically, that may not be in the best interest of the adversary. So, no, mitigating all the risks isn't something that always happens. That's the responsibility of the organization to appropriately understand when they put the risk results into their risk registry to digest them and try and determine what does need attention. Andrew, I have a question for you. Um, In principle, I understand what Mark is talking about, that addressing a risk can cost even more than just dealing with it after the fact. However... Um, it would seem to me that that kind of thing might apply better to IT security, where, you know, common malware viruses, they just come and go and maybe they don't hurt you so badly. But isn't it? I, I mean, I've never heard of a case in, in ICS security where the damage done by a break in of some sort wasn't, you know, monumental, wasn't cutting off the lights or potentially causing safety hazards. It's a hard question to, to, to answer. In, in a sense, you're right. And in a sense, I'll have to disagree with you. Certainly, some systems are very sensitive. You compromise a safety system or an equipment protection system and, you know, people get very excited very quickly. But I do recall, you know, from previous experience, maybe 10 years ago, I was, you know, with an organization that was actually going out and helping customers clean out common malware on their systems. Now, this was before the days of ransomware. Uh, which has probably changed the equation. But back then, uh, you know, just to give you a counterpoint, a counterexample, um, we had a certain number of customers. We'd get called out from time to time to clean out these systems. I did the math and concluded that roughly every, you know, rule of thumb was that every industrial site that we served, um, you know, got hit by common malware on average, let's say once a decade. And the most common consequence was nothing. It just sat there. Why? Because the common malware of the day was interested in stealing credit card numbers and, and bank account numbers and passwords and, and you know, looked around and said, that's funny, there's no credit card numbers on these control system machines. And I can't even reach out and connect to my command and control system to report those numbers to, to be exploited, even, even if there were any here. So it just sat there. Now, we would, you know, be called in from time to time to, to clean this stuff out. Because, you know, the engineering change control discipline demands that you don't have random software running on these control system machines. You want to control what's on there. So if something nasty worked its way in there, even if it wasn't doing anything, you still wanted to clean it out. But the cost 
of the compromise was pretty much only the cost of cleaning it out because it was just sitting there. So, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, you know, sleep well, it, nothing will happen. Um, it really means that it's a little more complicated than that. I think that's all I'm trying to say. Hmm, I understand. Now, if these instances of malware clearly aren't targeting industrial systems, um, how do they end up there? Is it just that these machines are laying vulnerable on the internet? No, no, it's uh, it's usually more complicated than that. I mean, the one concrete example, I actually remember this is, you know, this is Mark Favreau we're talking to here. I remember him giving a presentation about five, six years ago at a conference where his team went in, found the malware, cleaned it out, and then traced it back. Said, where did this come from? Well, it turned out that while this equipment, this control system was sitting in the system integrator's lab undergoing a factory acceptance test, you know, a couple of years before, um, somebody at that lab had connected up their iPhone, downloaded a bunch of photos, you know, went on the internet, bought a bunch of things, did a bunch of e-commerce and downloaded the malware by accident and contaminated this machine before it was physically picked up, carried to the industrial site and installed. So, you know, that's one example. The, 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 way, the, the ways by which this malware winds up on the site are many and varied. You talked about vulnerabilities. You talked about attack paths. Um, a word that I've heard other people use is capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, does that fit in here? Yeah. It, abs it absolutely does. So <laughs> this, is a, this is a great, this is a great uh, concept. Um, we have an ever-existing discussion about threats and cyber threat. And I, I think that the community at large needs to do a better job, and this is my opinion, but I think you know a lot of people might agree with me, that the concept of threat isn't necessarily the, the malware. It, it is not the attack code, right? A, a threat is a an event or an actual person. Th those are the threats. And and the, th the, the, the capabilities of the threat does actually weigh into the equation because when you're looking at adversarial methods in attack, adversaries have attributes. They have a capability and they have intent. And the third part of that equation is actually held by the target. That is, that is the opportunity. The opportunity for what an adversary can do is presented by the vulnerability landscape or the risk that is presented by target systems that the adversary is looking at. So these three elements of capability, uh, opportunity, and intent make up um, what the adversary may or may not do, right? When you have capability and opportunity and intent all lining up, you will have an event. Our goal is to try and understand our opportunity landscape in the context of the capabilities of the adversary so that they never line up. We would love to have our opportunity landscape so minimized that the adversary just doesn't have the capabilities to meet any of the conditions presented by those opportunities. And if they don't meet, the adversary is not going to do anything. So the capabilities of the adversary are very important in the discussion. This leads us to how contemporary risk assessments prove more beneficial when the asset owner themselves is helping develop the scenarios and the use cases to define 
what an adversary would actually have to do to accomplish a certain goal or a consequence. From that, you immediately derive the capabilities of the adversary that would be necessary to do it. If you are the defender and you understand your risk landscape and the opportunities that are presented by the existing vulnerabilities in your system, you immediately understand what the capabilities must be of the adversary to do that. If an adversary comes along with those capabilities and has the intent, they can override and, and, and take advantage of the opportunities presented by them. You get to the point where you start to defend your system to remove the opportunities and say, I don't know of an adversary that would have these capabilities to do that because they're so extensive. They would be remarkable to do that. So if the question is, are capabilities important? Capabilities are absolutely important because it defines what the adversary would need to be able to do to overcome certain opportunity or vulnerability in a system to achieve a goal. That gives us great insight on how we build our defense in depth strategies. So Nate, what, what Mark's talking about here is what a lot of people in the industry call a kill chain. Uh, you know, if you Google kill chain, uh, you'll see, especially industrial control system, industrial security kill chain, um, you'll see a couple of versions of, of uh, you know, different documents out there that talk about the sequence of steps that an attacker would have to carry out in order to achieve an objective, to, to cause a consequence. Uh, so, for example, if an attacker is coming from the internet and wants to reach a programmable logic controller and reprogram it remotely, uh, you know, the way Triton did, um, what would they have to do? Well, they'd have to get a foothold first on the IT network. To do that, they'd have to steal a password or they'd have to persuade someone to click on an attachment and launch launch malware on the IT network that would phone a command and control center. And once they're on the IT network, they would have to look around, find credentials, create credentials in order and find a path in order to get from the IT network through that path into the control network. Once they're on the control network, they have to look around, they have to find other things, they have to find a way to get to the PLC and so on. If we can, as defenders, if we can reliably defeat any single step in that in that kill chain, um, then you know we've we've defeated the attack. So, for example, um, you know, consider let, let's say that our a bunch of equipment on a a chunk of our control network, a segment of our control network, uh, is still has the uh, the Stuxnet link vulnerability, the one that Stuxnet used to jump from the USB key into the machine. Let's say that vulnerability is still there. It hasn't been patched yet. How worried should we be? Well, if we have a strong USB control program in place, if we've glued shut most of the USB ports on the control system, if we've trained our people that USBs are a threat, if we have USB scanning stations at the physical perimeter of the control system so that you know, these, these devices are scanned before they enter the control system. If we've rendered it nearly impossible to physically carry malware into that chunk of the control network um, uh, on a USB stick, well, then we've defeated that step in the, in the kill chain. And we have, uh, we don't have to, really, we don't, it, it's not that high a priority to patch the link vulnerability anymore because it's practically impossible to exploit. Now, 
one cautionary note I would I would uh, give our listeners who who may not be familiar with the, the kill chain concept. If you go out and look at the kill chains that are out there, most of them talk about attacks that start from the internet. The example I just gave of an attack that starts from a USB key, that kill chain is not well described in the literature out there. If we talk, you know, if we look at the the example of um, a a computer, you know, having had malware put on it as part of the operating system, as part of the manufacturing process, because the factory that produced the computer was infected, and that computer is carried into the control system, that kill chain is not well described. The one that's that everyone calls the industrial control system kill chain um, is talking about attacks from the internet. The other ones are left to our imagination. So, Mark, you've expressed concerns about how risk assessments are carried out. What what are your concerns? What what needs to be fixed here? Yeah. So it's it's more it's it's um, the the concerns are, are are rooted in having watched the evolution of how the asset owner wants the risk assessments performed. And there's a number of different things that that introduces complexity. One is is that the rapid rate of where the subject matter experts or the executives responsible for issuing the risk assessments, there is sometimes a high turnover. They move within the company. So there is a there is a lack of persistence as it relates to those in charge for managing the risk assessments to be in the same place and watch the evolution of how they're done. But what I've begun to notice is that over the last five or six years, there is a... Um, uh, there is the, a lack of evolution insofar as how the risk assessments are performed in that they still remain, the assessments are still structured to determine if good enough is, is, is good enough. I, I, I worry that the, the asset owners are not pushing their limits of imagination to get out of the box and perform assessments that would actually try and mimic or model scenarios involving a, a truly competent uh, threat actor with with intent it seems that the 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 operators the owner operators want to know if their defenses are good enough against scanners and tools and whether or not enough information could be collaborated and kludged together and aggregated to put together a target folder and where all the vulnerabilities are and and asking for reports that really provide a forum to be split up and handed to different people in areas of responsibility within the organization just to fix the, the vulnerability rather than looking at some larger aggregated risk. And and when we look at the work that we have done, the things that we have seen either through incident response or some different levels of analysis, the, the modern adversary has changed the way in which they are approaching attacking control systems. It is no longer just cyber. It is no longer just physical. There are components of blended cyber physical campaigns where the adversary is collecting and aggregating seemingly disparate, unrelated information and developing these comprehensive target folders that facilitate for previously unseen or unthought of vectors of attack using physical means to get presence inside unmanned facilities to get local cyber access or digital access to the network to attack physical protection systems to gain more access into highly sensitive areas where there's more networking equipment and, and things like that. Exfiltration of information related to um, specific individuals above and beyond just username and passwords. These are 
larger, more comprehensive type of campaigns. And I think it becomes really important to, as we've always said, to, to stay left of boom. And I'm, I'm taking the words from the very wise Tim Roxy. Staying left of boom is being constantly proactive, keeping in mind the worst thing that can actually happen and continuing to evaluate against that. GridX was, was great for that because it empowered the participants to really see really bad things happening and understand whether or not their countermeasures, their incident response function was appropriate to a real threat. My concern these days is whether or not the assessments that are being done on an individual basis at utilities and asset owners around the world, if they're actually pushing the limit on these assessments and evaluating their risk posture against a real adversary, a competent adversary, testing against the tools, techniques, and procedures that would actually result in significant negative consequences, things that would bypass whatever it is that they're prepared for, get them to the right side of boom. So getting to the right side of boom in a controlled environment, I think, is a great opportunity because you don't want to be right of boom in the real world. Getting right of boom and understanding it in a controlled test environment is great because then you can stay left of boom with the appropriate measures and understanding it. And that's a good position to be in. I worry that, 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 that the, uh, the operators and the asset owners are staying in their comfort zone. They are only doing just good enough and they're not necessarily taking into consideration some of the real world things that may be coming at them. And, um, we, we try and stress and provide a, a, a platform or guidance for people to just get a little bit out of the box, take the risk associated, be brave, be brave. The results are not always good, but they're always informative. And it gives you a great new insight onto um, how to stay way left of boom. So, Nate, Mark mentioned GridX and, and he talked about uh, sort of uh, attack capabilities that are much more aggressive than people have been taking into account. Um, for those not familiar with it, GridX is a an exercise uh, simulating an attack on the power grid in North America. So this is an exercise that the uh, NERC, uh, North American Electric Reliability Corporation, carries out annually. Um, the one that sticks in my mind is GridX3 that happened, I think, not uh, 2018, but 2017. Um, the scenario there... now. You know, NERC does not publish a lot of information about these scenarios, but um, the the brief description that uh, NERC reported and that was reported in the in the the popular press is that the scenario involved active shooters at one or more substations, coordinated with a cyber attack, and uh, you know these active shooters actually shot and killed law enforcement officials investigating things, um, utility employees investigating outages and this complicated uh, and already very complicated cyber attack with this this physical element and uh, I don't remember but basically the the uh, you know the the conclusion uh, in the, the report that was issued said you know we have a lot of, of coordination that, that needs to be worked out here um, we could have done much better so you know the 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 simulated scenario resulted in uh, you know fairly long power outages for you know fairly large numbers of people. Um, I think this is 
the kind of thing that that uh, that Mark's talking about here, saying, look, you know, we have to think out of the box. Don't think, uh, and like I just did, a, a virus coming in on a USB stick that wants to steal some credit card numbers. That's not the real problem here. The real problem is uh, scenarios that are really much more frightening. And if we carry out our own internal grid X, our own scenario where we are asked on paper sitting around a table to, uh, you know, lay out how we would respond minute by minute as, you know, new information is made available to the scenario. We should not fear failing a scenario like that because we'd rather fail <laughs> the scenario and learn from it and fix our problems than, you know, fail right of boom in the real world. Now, you know, I love that term. That was, uh, that's Tim Roxy's. Uh, he was the uh, uh, chief security officer at the uh, Electric Sector Information Sharing and Analysis Center that was affiliated with NERC. Can you give me one concrete example? You said, um, you know, the, the modern adversaries are giving, are, are taking on cyber physical aspects to their campaigns. Um, you know, they're using unthought of attack vectors. Can you give me one example of what, uh, of what that might mean? Yeah, so so when we say unthought of vectors, it's 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 it more like previously not considered because they 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 weren't viable. When when you have the conversations with the asset owners, sometimes they will say, you know, no one would want to physically break into an unmanned station because there's nothing there. They haven't really. Um, they haven't necessarily thought through the consequences associated with an adversary breaking into a station who who isn't there to steal something. Um, a concrete example of this is um, when you look at an adversary who has cut through the fence at a facility, at an unmanned facility, and has actually gone into the control house and has taken boots and radios and some equipment as somewhat of a false flag, but simultaneously left something in the control house, something that is attached to the piece of networking equipment, could be a Raspberry Pi, could be a pineapple, could be anything, and, and hidden within the facility. Um, the, the incident response function for the physical break-in usually involves corporate or physical security to come out and investigate. And their laundry list of activities include to look for what was stolen. They're going to mark off radios. They're going to mark off boots. Someone stole some copper, whatever it's going to be. Historically, the incident response function doesn't include an evaluation of the inventory of the digital equipment in there, nor does it actually include the evaluation of whether or not anything has been added to the digital inventory. So this is, a, I think, a quick example of a blended cyber-physical campaign where the goal of the attacker is to get a point of presence on the network, but they need to accomplish a physical goal to get that. And, and, and only in recent, you know, just the last couple of years ago, have entities realized that someone could break in to place a wireless, a rogue access point, or some other piece of equipment uh, on in the digital environment. And they're not just necessarily there to steal something because the first intent, it was a physical break-in. They want to steal something. Well, no, the physical break-in is there to put something there. And that that simple example in many cases, in our experience, has been a bit of a change agent on how organizations are looking at risk. Cyber attacks that are specifically intended 
to steal local credentials. If the adversary has enough common sense to understand that the remote access and countermeasures are such that you're never going to use single credentials to log in remotely, you can only use them in the local area network. Well, what if the adversary is going to have placed someone on the inside already and an and, and insider or someone with access to the network and they're harvesting local credentials to get to the insider through an out-of-band communication and have them use those credentials on the inside. Thing, things like that. It's These are traditionally disparate elements of different types of attacks now being put together in different ways to create scenarios that some people may have thought of, that not thought of before. They result in significant consequence. They result in significant breaches. Um, but by themselves aren't necessarily things that organizations would think too much about or they would try and create mitigation strategies for each individual one, sometimes the countermeasures and mitigation plans for each individual component are ineffective when those previously disparate vector components are put together. It, 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 it doesn't work anymore. And this is, this is where we want to get people to start thinking differently. So Mark's example of breaking into a substation is is rather less dramatic than than your Gridex example. Yeah, definitely less dramatic, um, but you know, still very concerning. Um, you know, I interviewed Mark at the Canada Public Safety event in Charlottetown. One of the speakers there, Alex Frappier, with uh, with Canada Public Safety, um, was talking about the these the, these leave behind risks and. You know, it was it was really quite scary. The the uh, you know he'd give an example of a a keylogger, uh, you know that's about physically the size of a large USB key. So you can you can unplug the USB keyboard from one of the computers at the site, put this keylogger on it, and plug it back in to the uh, to the uh, the USB port, and now it's recording keystrokes, passwords. Um, you know, it has. It, it, you can get these things with, or you can build these things with a little wireless transmitter in them, so that you know when the uh, the the attacker uh, comes by a month later, pauses for two minutes outside of the now repaired substation with their truck. You know, they can download the keystrokes and and go away. Um, you know, he didn't talk about it, but I imagine you can do the same thing with with uh, uh, screen images. You know. One of the examples he gave was, um, look, if you uh, if you are leaving something behind and you're worried that, you know, someone might be a little suspicious, write, you know, print, print yourself an official looking black, uh, you know, sorry, uh, black sticker with red, red, you know, words on it saying, um, you know, important colon, do not remove exclamation point. And the technicians who come and who might stumble over this and see it, they immediately go hands off <laughs> and leave it there. This is, you know, this is human nature in these in these environments. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's depressing how small these devices can be and how capable they can be, and, and you know how you know the fact that you can get into these these remote sites and use them as jump points into uh, more valuable central targets is uh, is very concerning so if i can paraphrase what i heard you say was um, a a traditional 
engagement for a risk assessment would specify in a contract or in a request for proposals or you know some some written statement saying here's the scope of the the investigation mm -hmm. we want you to uh, you know do an inventory of uh, all of the assets we have on the network and tell me all of their patch levels and mm -hmm. uh, unex you know still exposed vulnerabilities look at various configurations come back with vulnerabilities mm -hmm. and that report would not include uh, you know this kind of cyber physical you know break into a substation scenario if if that's accurate um, what should the the request the the rules of engagement the the statement of work what should the statement of work say instead of going inventory this stuff and get the other right. vulnerabilities what right. should it say well well first of all first of all a scope of work that involves going in and inventory the assets and determining patch levels i i don't think is something that an entity should outsource. I think that that is an in-house capability that they should have, that they can do themselves because the benefits from both a cost and an intelligence perspective are significant if you have that in-house. I, I think that, you know, one of the things we have started to see is the emergence of procurement-specific language involving more integration of threat actor characteristics and methods that, that allow the system to be test in ways above and beyond just understanding the vulnerabilities of the patch level of a, of a system gives you insight into the landscape of opportunity an adversary might have should they become knowledgeable of all the vulnerabilities. And, you know, we've known for a long time that an asset owner should assume that an adversary has detailed working knowledge of all the vulnerabilities. The detailed working knowledge of all the vulnerabilities gives you insight into what the opportunity landscape looks like. The next step in the assessment is to understand what would be required by an adversary, what steps need to be taken, what, what, what conditions need to be met to get to those opportunities and capitalize on them in a way that the capitalization or the exploitation of the vulnerabilities in the opportunity landscape are undetected and unmitigated. And then work through the cases of worst to least. Find out the ones that are the hardest to detect but could be the most damaging down to the ones that are the easiest to detect and delay and mitigate and put them at the bottom. The risk assessments that involve detailed inventories, patch levels, and vulnerability analysis is is barely halfway to a complete and comprehensive picture because just fixing the vulnerability right changes the opportunity landscape it doesn't nullify it right but in many cases also going out and addressing some of the more significant vulnerabilities that are found in this simplified risk assessment don't empower the operator to address the actual risks that could result in the most significant consequence. Sometimes the vulnerabilities that are most scathing and highest CVSS scores are actually the most difficult to exploit in a given environment. The conditions that need to be met to get to the point to exploit that are significant. But you're going to have other scores of CVSS 5 or 6 that are incredibly easy to do. And that's where the adversary would want to go. And sometimes organizations say, well, that score is so low. Who's going to do anything with that? Well, the competent adversary who knows the level of investment and level of effort to go to get after that CVSS 10 is significant. They may not do it right. There's more opportunity for failure. They're surely going to get detected. The lower hanging fruit in today's adversary environment gives them lots of opportunity to get in there and do something. So it's really doing the risk assessment 
understanding what the vulnerability is, but then looking at it in the context of what the adversary could actually do with it and understand the conditions in the digital environment that, that reflect how easy or difficult it would be and then implement mitigations accordingly. Andrew, what did he mean by CVSS? What does that stand for? CVSS is a common vulnerability scoring system. This is a system that was uh, was set up to try and uh, rate vulnerabilities as to how severe they were. Um, you know, when when you see these reports coming out from the, uh, the the cyber emergency response team, the CERT in one country or another, they'll often you know they'll talk about new vulnerability discovered. Here's the description. Here's the equipment that's affected. Uh, you know, it's a CVSS eight. Um, which is, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, it's fairly bad. 10 is very bad. 10 tends to be reserved for those vulnerabilities that can be exploited remotely to cause arbitrary code execution, which is a fancy way of saying, I can send your computer a message. And after that, it will do anything I tell it to. So that's a 10. Um, the CVSS kind of goes hand in hand with CVE. Generally, when you hear a CVSS score, it's applied to a CVE entry. CVE is common vulnerability, uh, common vulnerability and exposures. It's a database of uh, vulnerabilities because, you know, in the past, um, some you know some researcher would discover a vulnerability and give it a name. The vendor, you know, be it Microsoft or Oracle or whoever, would you know, get the report of the vulnerability and give it its own number, uh, you know, a Microsoft vulnerability number. And then, you know, some other researcher might discover it at the same time and give it a different name. And you wind up with three and four and five names on these vulnerabilities. The CVE is a database that gives a standard name and says, you know, this number 732 means Microsoft vulnerability such and so, this other vulnerability such and so, and it gathers it all together and gives you a, a, a standard way of, of talking about these things. So, you know, when, when Mark is talking about CVE entries and CVSS, when, when you get a report of vulnerabilities, the, the, the vulnerability portion of the risk assessment report tends to use uh, CVSS scores and CVE entry numbers pretty exclusively uh, because that's sort of the, the standard way to talk about vulnerabilities. And do you think that scoring systems such as these are useful in understanding risk or are they reductionist? That That's a very good question. Um, Mark actually spoke to uh, how we use those numbers. So let me hold off answering that until after we hear Mike, Mark's answer. Can you give me the, a kind of example of what you're talking about? Um, you know, what kind of sort of medium priority vulnerability might be more attractive in a particular context? Can you describe a, a context where, you know, a, a, a 10 is inaccessible, but a 5 might sure. actually be? That's a re- that's a really that's a really good question. So, you know, it's, it's impossible to think about this without considering attack models and kill chains and, and, and attack trees to do that. A simple example would be like if you are doing, consider a, a situation where you have an unpatched human machine interface or, or an engineering workstation that's got MS-1710 in there, you know, the crowbar of all crowbars just pops up open, but, but the conditions to actually get to the chunk of the network to actually get to that particular device is just astronomical. I mean, there's, there's, there could be a successful VLANs with the proper you know, the, the virtual routing and forwarding, it's all done right. It makes it very, very hard. You have other peripheral machines that may have lower scored 
you know, uh, SMB or SNMP, other specific issues, particularly SNMP. SNMP often gets unignored. And in some of the default installs around the world, particularly industrial automation, you know, SNMP is used for system health diagnostics. And there is Unfortunately, a historical track record of this being implemented improperly with older versions of it, they have much lower CVSS scores because the the um, the consequence associated with a maximized exploitation of, of of SNMP technically doesn't get you very far. But the adversary who knows what they're doing for a maximum exploitation of some SNMP vulnerabilities can write to systems, make changes in the systems, and get to the point where they could get closer and create greater opportunity to exploit something like an MS-1710, right? So so that would be one example where you have lower scored, lower hanging fruit that would in the, in, you know, in a, in a small, in the small scale of things individually doesn't actually look like anything important. And if the adversary attacks it, well, eh, well, whatever, they've just, they've just done that. In the context of an adversary understanding the entire landscape of opportunity for the target systems, these lower scoring, seemingly more benign vulnerabilities can add up in a piecemeal fashion to allow the adversary to move in a coordinated manner closer and closer to the richer targets with the higher consequence for that. And I think that to your point earlier, just by stopping at looking at all patch levels and vulnerabilities, Sometimes fixing the most critical stuff, although it is important, sometimes fixing the most critical stuff is, is, where, is where it stops. Some of the lower hanging the fruit isn't because it doesn't seem to be important. But the organizations need to look at it in the larger scheme of doing attack trees and modeling with the adversary with competence and intent to try and use associated vectors that traditionally haven't been thought about before. If you know, It's not like the adversary is like, oh, well, there's MS-1710 on that HMI. Ooh, I can't touch it. Well, I'm going to go away. I'm not going to do anything else. There are other ways to get there. It could be blended cyber physical. It could be a combination of exploitation of lower CVS scores, lower hang- like like not so low hanging fruit, and things like that. So that's kind of where we're getting at. Sounds to me like the message there is that these numbers give you some idea, but of course, to take them at face value, you're not going to get the whole picture of your your risk assessment. That's right. And, you know, I think Mark's point was that um, if we go and fix the highest severity, uh, you know, we have a certain budget to, to mitigate these risks. If we, if we spend the budget first on the highest severity uh, uh, vulnerabilities that may be the most expensive to fix in terms of downtime, in terms of schedule, in terms of access to the equipment, we may not be solving the problem correctly. So, you know, a concrete example. Um, a lot of industrial sites, especially the, the NERC SIP sites, have jump hosts. A jump host is a machine that uh, is visible to the internet. You can reach into it with at least a VPN, uh, which is an encrypted connection, connect to the jump host, and from the jump host, reach further into the control system. You know, Mark's example, the, the, the CBSS 10 vulnerability might live deep in the control system. And we might see a bunch of CBSS 5-ish vulnerabilities on the, the jump host. You know, one of these vulnerabilities might be this SNMP example you gave. That's simple network management protocol. SNMP implementations tend to be quite robust on network equipment like routers and switches. 
historically, they've been really bad on hosts like Unix hosts, Linux hosts, Windows hosts. And, uh, you know, you, if you see a, a, uh, uh, an older implementation of SNMP with a, a CVSS5 vulnerability, you might say, well, not a big deal. But if, if that vulnerability is on the jump host, it is potentially visible to attackers coming in from the IT network and the internet. The jump host is more exposed to attack than is the HMI host deep into the into the control system. And you know, in in this example, let's say there are several vulnerabilities, several CVSS five vulnerabilities on the jump host, which is exposed to at least the IT network. An adversary who's got a foothold on the IT network can now exploit two and three and four of these vulnerabilities. And it may be that they add up to enough capability to take the next step and jump further into the system, even though none of them individually rated very high. So, you know, exposure is one of the things that needs to be considered um, when we're evaluating these vulnerabilities um, and, and trying to decide which one's you know, should be should be mitigated first in you know in our our fixed budget scenario. Okay, I take your point, but of course, if we're going to use that you know theoretical example of the company with a level ten vulnerability that they want to address urgently, and then some lower level vulnerabilities, um, what's the answer? How do they prioritize this stuff? This is um, where where uh, Mark's original advice about capabilities and you know our discussion of kill chains comes in um, if we have vulnerabilities serious vulnerabilities in equipment that are buried deep on the end of a kill chain and we have less serious vulnerabilities in equipment that's much more exposed uh, you know to higher levels of the kill chain uh, it might make more sense to lock down the higher levels of the kill chain to block the the, the attackers further out of the system you know, we do eventually want to fix the CVSS 10 vulnerabilities deep in the system, but we might have to wait a little longer to do that. And in the meantime, uh, it's it may be a more profitable to use our limited budget in the short term to defeat steps of the kill chain, uh, you know, much further out from the target, keep the, the, the bad guys further away from the target. So, I mean, this is something that is, is uh, it's a complicated question. It's, it's a different question. I mean, Mark's uh, speaking to us about the risk assessment process. The, the risk mitigation process is, you know, answering that question probably is another whole podcast. We'll have to find uh, either bring Mark back or, or find someone else who can speak to that topic. All right. Let's return now to your conversation with Mark. If an organization is recruiting an, an external service provider for a risk assessment uh, and, you know, what you're seeing is that uh, too many organizations are looking at too little of the problem, not, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about the bigger problem. Um, it, you know, it, it, I'm guessing it may be too much to say, hey, you guys, you need to understand risk assessment better. You should be asking for something different. Um, they may not understand risk assessment. Right. This is this is the problem. Um, if an organization suspects this is the case and they're engaging with uh, one or more potential providers, what's the right way to to get the right job done? What, you know, should they be asking different questions? Should what what should they be doing in order to 
you know, learn enough about this to, to get the right job done in the end. So, so there's really no right or wrong questions that can be asked to the service provider. I think that every contemporary service provider, for the most part, has appropriate capabilities to meet the needs of, of a customer. In this particular case, and I think this is what you're saying, is that the burden of responsibility on how it's framed is the responsibility of the customer, right? So from the customer perspective, it is important for them prior to going to market, prior to writing a statement of work, there is a mission statement and a goals objective associated with what the assessment wants to accomplish. When all is said and done, what does the asset owner want to know? Now, the, you know, nowadays you just say at the end of this assessment, the report is going to allow uh, the utility to be able to understand their vulnerability profile of their industrial control systems. That that's a little too ethereal and too high nature because it's not it's not holding fire to the feet of the service provider to come up with an, an appropriate answer. I, I think that, and again, this goes back to. It's got nothing really to do with the service provider. It's it's the asset owner themselves to be better informed on what it is they should be doing to really get a better grip on their risk above and beyond being just good enough. They need to stop performing the risk assessments that are just going to check off the boxes to show that what they're doing is adequate, right? It's not a regulatory audit. That's a completely different thing to check off those boxes. So... I believe that if if someone were being putting together a, a scope of work to do this more comprehensively, taking into consideration some of the things we're talking about, I think that they would be they would be well served to incorporate um, ideas generated by doing intelligence reviews, by getting beyond reading newspapers and hype in the media, but actually looking at properly informed. Uh, well-processed reports on real-world events, on adversarial techniques, doing an analysis of, you know, highly available indicators of compromise published by, you know, Public Safety Canada or, or other entities, and incorporating that and digesting that into the scope of work process to say, what I want out of this is I want to understand, and if an adversary, what, what are the capabilities that an adversary would have to have necessary for the current system I have right now and what are the recommendations to move me out of reach for the contemporary adversary and provide me enough guidance to restructure my roadmap and my cyber my control system cybersecurity strategy to ensure that I have this long-term self-sustaining program that's going to keep up with the evolving threat landscape. Uh, then, and then that gets processed out to the street, and 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 the consulting group will look at that and and give their insight on how they would approach that. And I think that that's the way to do it. I mean, it's a great opportunity for the asset owner to say, "I want to know where I am right now, and I want to know how to prevent a successful attack from happening in the context of real-world adversaries." Because if you take care of the real-world adversaries, you're going to take care of the script kitties, I think, as well. Because, um, but then. The outputs also have to include content that will allow the customer, allow the entity to inform their own cybersecurity framework to better tune their risk registry so that it's it's self-sustaining and the go-forward path doesn't drop back into that just good enough, right? Um, that's brilliant. 
It's brilliant. Oh, well, I, I don't. I, don't I love that answer. <laughs> okay. You know, it doesn't surprise me, Andrew, that you find what Mark said brilliant because he sounds exactly like you did. I've been working with you for a little while now. And through talking and through reading your book, I just downloaded something from your website. Uh, you have a talent for describing many different types of attacks that haven't yet happened out in the world, but sound like they definitely could. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it when our guests agree with me. And, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's uh, it's brilliant. So, uh, you know, I would I would uh, paraphrase the uh, sort of the the. Uh, the upshot of it, the, the piece that, that triggered my re my reaction there, I'd say um, what's brilliant is, you know, I've maintained for, for a couple of years now that any risk assessment that's worth its weight in water um, should not just be a list of vulnerabilities and their severities. It should also include a description of one, at least probably several, kinds of attacks that would succeed against the the target on a uh, target of evaluation because you know first law of cybersecurity nothing is secure there's always an attack that will get in the question that i believe uh owners and operators need answered is what you know give me some examples give me some examples of simple attacks the simplest attack that will get in some of these attacks aren't very simple. It might need to be a very complex attack. But of the set of attacks that will succeed, no matter how complex, there's always a simplest one of them. Those are the ones I want to know about. And, you know, to Mark's point, we also want to know about if we were to mitigate these attack paths, because these attacks are always multi-step attacks. If we were to, to uh, address these attack paths, um, which paths would cost more or cost less to to mitigate so you know that that concept that that the you know the concept of the kill chain the concept of attack paths the concept of of uh the, the cheapest uh mitigation the cheapest attack that will succeed i think are all uh concepts that ought to be reflected in these reports and you know it was it was uh nice to hear mark say in his own way uh you know I, I heard him confirm that uh, in, in the last segment here. You, you know, you and Mark strike me as, as the types of kids in school who, when you hand in your test to the teacher, you also hand in essays that you chose to write without them even asking. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a nerd from way back. I can't speak for Mark. Um, you know, I have a speaking gig uh, in a couple of weeks here in Calgary, my hometown, at the Calgary Unix Users Group. And, you know, it's on my favorite topic, industrial security. And, and people ask me, Calgary Unix users group, Unix, does anyone still use Unix? What? Who are these people? And, you know, I don't know if, if they'll be happy with me characterizing them this way, but, you know, I describe them as uh, a bunch of nerds, mostly old ones, like me. Really? <laughs> we were, we were I, nerds before it was cool to be nerds. I thought all ICS people were really cool. I thought you guys were all jocks. <laughs> yes, well, I'm sorry to disillusion you. But I wanted to, I want, you know, we should get back to our interview. I wanted to leave, uh, leave Mark with the last word here. We like to leave our guests with the last word, with a final thought. Is there a message you'd like to leave with our listeners? Is there a takeaway you'd like to leave with them? Um, I, I, I do. A, a lot of the, uh, I, I think if I was to say anything, which I tell a lot of people who are 
trying to better understand how to build the scope for the assessments, how to better understand what it is that they need. Um, it's kind of a long takeaway message. The first one is just be brave. Be brave to get out of the box and push the limits of your imagination to incorporate activities that you really wouldn't before. Don't be afraid of the results because they are digestible, they are manageable, and they will get you to a better spot. That's really be be brave. Take that jump. Um, then the other thing is, is that when you are developing the scope of work, involve the stakeholders from the organization that would have a hand in their areas of responsibility within their business units. They have assets or resources that could actually be part of a comprehensive campaign. Make sure that the stakeholders from all aspects of the business are involved in the process of the development of the scope of work because they, in the event you do go forward with something that's more comprehensive and out of the box, they will undoubtedly be involved in the assessment process. And if they're not, you risk them feeling excluded. You won't have their buy-in and that creates tension and that doesn't solve the problem about unified approaches to cybersecurity protecting mission critical assets. When you are brave and you include all the necessary stakeholders, it is impossible not to create an experience or a product that is going to be a game changer for the stakeholders and the constituents and be a game changer for how control system cybersecurity is looked at in the future. Andrew, how about your final thoughts? Well, I just wanted to, uh, you know, echo some of, of Mark's points here. Um, when he talks about involving uh, all of the stakeholders, you know, I think it's especially important to involve stakeholders like your physical security people, the people who are in charge of your guards, gates and guns. Uh, because you know he's talked about cyber physical attacks it's important to you know in a in a power grid to include the people responsible for the substations in a pipeline the people responsible for the pumping and the compressor stations you know it's all of these all of these uh, these stakeholders not only uh, need to have their interests reflected in the cybersecurity program they contribute to the strength of a cybersecurity program. And it's important to get them to, to, to buy in um, as early as possible. And the risk assessment phase tends to be the beginning of most programs. You know, it, it's a cycle. You assess, you plan, you execute, you monitor and repeat, you know, evaluate and repeat. Um, and so, you know, getting, getting everyone to buy in uh, expands the scope of the assessment, expands the uh, the scope of the mitigation from just the purely cyber bits moving around to you know the the cyber physical, which is I think uh, you know some of the the good points Mark made. Well, thanks to Mark for his insights, and thank you Andrew for your insights. Always a pleasure. We'll catch you next time, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thank you all for listening.